Welcome to the CEC report for the 5th of October 2018. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, put banks back in their box before a new crash and CEC's five-point program to survive the oncoming economic crisis. So firstly today, put banks back in their box before a new crash. So we've got a couple of interesting things to talk about today, Craig. And first of all, we want to talk about the interim report that has been issued by the Financial Services Royal Commission. So Commissioner Kenneth Hayne handed down that report on Friday the 28th of September. And while he didn't make any uh, recommendations at this stage, and there's been some consternation over that, Um, He has asked all the right questions and they're the sorts of questions that, if they're pursued, will result in certain types of answers and, in fact, answers that um, lead exactly in the direction of what we've been pushing, which is that the banks need to be strictly regulated, including banking separation, Mm -hmm. a la Glass-Steagall, the 1933 US Banking Act, Uh, which would prevent deposit-taking banks from gambling. And we'll get more into the guts of that uh, in the next segment today. Um, But I want to begin with the broadest question which Commissioner Hayne asked, which is crucial actually. He said, what can be done to prevent the conduct, the bad bank conduct, happening again? Mm. Um, Because the last thing we want is a repeat of this sort of thing, uh, even though you might look at it and examine it, you don't need it happening all over again as we've seen Uh, with the results of the handling of the global financial crisis, that everything the banks did, all that bad behaviour has been repeated all over again, which is why we're in line for a new global financial crisis any day now. Um, Now, the other thing I want to reference from Haynes' report is his reference to Glass-Steagall, because he did raise that explicitly. And I'll quote this to you, but this comes after he posed questions in regard to the problems of the structure and the regulation of banking. So the report says, in considering these issues, it is important to recognise that legislative regulation of the structure of the banking industry is not unknown. From time to time, overseas jurisdictions have limited not only the kinds of transaction, but also the affiliations with other firms that banks may have. The United States Banking Act of 1933, usually called the Glass-Steagall Act, sought to separate commercial and investment banking. In 2013, the UK enacted the Financial Services Banking Reform Act 2013, requiring banks to ring-fence certain core activities by 2019. These references, he said, are not to be misunderstood. They are not to be read as my suggesting that either of these laws could be or should be directly imported and applied here. But the point of immediate relevance is that structural regulation of banking activities is not novel. So Craig, despite the caveat that he put on this, that he's not saying this should be directly imported, the fact that he's raised this as a topic of discussion is going to make the banking community very nervous. Absolutely, Lisa. Listen, there's over 500 questions being asked by the Commissioner. Mm. The report is already a 1,000 pages long. That's just an interim report. So there's going to be a lot of uh, pushback by the banks on this because they're going to be put under the, you know, the potential to put under the microscope. The very fact that he's raised Glass-Steagall shows the depth of the sort of mobilisation that we've been running 
for many, many months now, with many of our supporters and viewers on the, of this program, you know, putting in submissions to the Royal Commission at, or you know, talking to their members of parliament. So, look, the banks are very, very nervous because this is the crux of the issue. Mm. Are we going to have a system which is based upon gambling and as we see now in the current system, or are we going to go back to a properly regulated system where Glass-Steagall separates out the necessary commercial banking system and protects it, guarantees it, from the merchant banking, the vertical integration, which means stockbroking houses, insurance companies, you know, uh, merchant investment banking, all in the, uh, in, that, uh, in the one roof at the present time, separating out those elements from commercial banking. So you have a sound commercial a banking system and not one that's full up with all these, all these other uh, aspects which are creating the big big problems that we have with their gambling and mm. speculation. And you can see from some of the other questions that Hayne asked um, that it really is pointing in this kind of direction of serious structural and regulatory change um, that needs to be much tighter and stricter top down. So I'll, I'll go through some of the questions that were posed on that particular subject. So on the regulatory architecture, he asked, is the law governing financial services entities and their conduct too complicated? Does it impede effective conduct risk management? Does it impede effective regulatory enforcement? Then he asks, is the regulatory regime too complex? Should there be radical simplification of the regulatory regime. Mm -hmm. And of course, Glass-Steagall is known to be a very brief and simple piece of legislation. It's only 37 pages when it was brought back in the 1930s by Franklin Roosevelt. 37 mm. pages. Yep. The Dodd-Frank bill that tried to deal with the global financial crisis was over 800 pages of absolute gobbledygook yeah. complex regulations that tried to tell the banks what they could do. Glass-Steagall said, this is what you can't do, yeah, and, and a big difference. Yeah, and there's way too many loopholes created when you do yes. such a long and complex piece of legislation. Now, there were numerous questions raised about APRA's practices, whether they were satisfactory, uh, which of course they were not. Uh, numerous questions were raised about the structure of banking, whether structural changes should be made, whether vertical integration should be allowed, where banks make and then sell the same products under the same roof. Uh, the question was asked, are changes in law necessary? Should the financial services law be simplified? Should the regulatory architecture change? Is structural change in the industry necessary? And bearing in mind um, that they weren't, in the terms of reference, meant to be looking at macroprudential matters like the structure of the regulatory system. So mm. this is actually very important and it all points explicitly in the direction of the type of change that we uniquely have put on the table. Um, now in regards to the length of the Royal Commission and the terms, um, it's likely that there won't be an extension. Everything that uh, Hayne is saying is that he's happy to file his report because as he put it, the banking system is a central artery of the economy. So he said these issues actually have to be resolved now. And whilst it's disappointing that so many of the bank victims have not been heard, that is an important uh, factor. And of course, it just being that there, if there is no extension does not necessarily mean that the right solutions won't be levied and that justice won't be delivered because it's not a question of length. If you look at the 1933 PCORA Commission, which preceded the implementation of the Glass-Steagall Act in the United States, mm. whilst the commission had been ongoing for some time, there was a period of 10 days when um, the new commissioner of that task force was appointed 
Ferdinand Pecora, yeah. where just in 10 days, he stripped bare all of the corruption, everything that had gone on. And it was those 10 days, which you can read about in an excellent book uh, by Michael Perino called The Hellhound of Wall Street. I really recommend it because it's a precedent for what we have to do here today. Um, and those 10 days were exactly the impetus to create that Glass-Steagall reform that uh, Franklin Roosevelt did. So while Labor is calling for an extension of the Royal Commission, you know, one of the things they have raised is that um, you know, they, their nervousness came up that there weren't any recommendations yet in the interim report. And they said, well, we need to know the recommendations well in advance because we need to be able to discuss those with the bank victims and with the banks. Now, you, you know, the banks, you don't need any discussion with the banks. They need to be told not heard. We don't want their opinions, and we're going to talk about that a bit more in the next segment. Yeah. Um, because as we'll see, um, you know, the only firm and successful way to do this is to give them the direction of what, as you said, they can no longer do. The issue, Elisa, is whether the government of this country is going to you know, govern financial policy, monetary policy, on behalf of the people and tell the banks mm. what they cannot do. Yeah. Right, and that's really the key. And it's a question of political will. It that is. can be done in 10 days, it can be done in two days. Haynes still has hearings coming up in November in Sydney and Melbourne, and he yeah. has that's on policy questions. And then there's still a full four months until his final report on the 1st of February next year. So there's plenty of time to get this done. Now, what we need people to do is make their submissions because the Royal Commission is calling for submissions. They want your feedback, and you have until the 26th of October to do that. And they need to hear overwhelming public support. So don't just do it yourself. Get everyone you know to do it. Um, put, put in a submission calling for Glass-Steagall and we'll put up the website address on the screen. Or you can write to the Financial Services Royal Commission, PO Box 5446, Kingston, ACT 2604. And Lisa, if anyone wants some more, more detailed information, look, they can call in to get a copy of the Australian Alert Service. Yep. Uh, the, the numbers and the contact details are on the screen now. This goes through this the importance of what they need to do. Yep. We'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to the CEC Report where we're discussing putting the banks back in their box before the oncoming crash. And Craig Glass-Steagall has been raised in the US in a dramatic way on the 10th anniversary of Lehman Brothers um, there was a dialogue of five economists that took part in, took place in Washington DC on the 26th of September at the National Press Club. And just to preface it, um, Bernie Sanders has put up new legislation in the US Congress calling for Glass-Steagall bank separation for the six biggest US banks. So we are yet to see the details of that, but it's all you know momentum in this direction for Glass-Steagall. Now, the, we're going to show a few clips of this. The five speakers in this expert dialogue that took place in DC were Naomi Prince, former Wall Street executive and author, Robert Kuttner, co-founder of the political magazine The American Prospect, Marcus Stanley, policy director for the non-profit organisation Americans for Financial Reform, Professor Arthur Wilmarth, George Washington University Law School, and Bart Naylor from consumer rights advocacy group Public Citizen. Um, now, Naomi Prince set the stage by talking about how mortgages were complexified to allow this massive housing bubble to build. Um, and she ended by demanding that in the new crisis, governments choose the people over Wall Street. But then this first clip by Arthur Wilmarth talks about how before Glass-Steagall and after Glass-Steagall, the banks could use deposits to speculate. And that was a key problem. 
what happened in both the 1920s and then more recently was that banks were able to use uh, their deposits to make lots of very speculative loans and then to package them up into securities that were sold uh, to customers around the world, but particularly to depositors and other customers who trusted them. So you have this massive explosion of foreign bonds and, and, and very risky domestic corporate bonds in the 1920s, followed by risky stocks and risky what, be, what were the forerunners of mutual funds. And, and if you look back at the 1980s and 90s, um, to me there were three drivers of the financial crisis uh, that were simp would simply have been illegal, unlawful, couldn't have been done uh, if Glass-Steagall had remained law. Uh, breaking down Glass-Steagall was a 20-year process because the banks got the regulators first to keep punching loopholes in it, right, and weakening it. And then finally, uh, they got Congress to repeal it in 1999. But let's look at the three drivers, in my opinion. One, one Nomi has mentioned was securitization, because when, you know, it, when banks could only make mortgage loans and had to keep them on their balance sheet, you know, you could get into trouble, right? The SNLs got into trouble doing that. You could get into serious trouble, but you couldn't probably crash the entire economy doing that. But once you could take uh, uh, loans and package them into mortgage-backed securities and then sell them out around the world. And Wilmarth then explains that not only did deposit-taking banks start gambling, but investment banks started taking deposits too under different names to ramp up their gambling. Glass-Steagall allowed that too, so a lot of extra money originating from the population could be spun out by many multiples. So you had this, you had 18, 20 trillion dollars of hot money, you know, being used to chase really speculative bets around the world. Glass-Steagall would have prevented that if we hadn't torn it down. Why did, why did Wall Street and the banks spend 20 years trying to tear it down? Because it restrained them, right? It kept them doing from what they wanted to do, which is to gamble. Um, the simple response after the last crisis would have been to say, let's go back to the system we had in 1933, you know, which was a, a segmented system where you didn't have a crisis in the banking system automatically taking down the capital markets or a crisis in the capital markets automatically taking down the banking system. But uh, uh, we didn't learn, right? We didn't learn our lesson. Of course, uh, I'll, I'll close with a quote from Upton Sinclair who said, you know, it's really hard to, to make a, a person understand something when their whole way of life depends upon their not understanding <laughs> it. Uh, who was running Congress even in 2010? Pretty much the banks, right? I mean, not not totally, but pretty much, right? It it, it took a miracle to get Dodd Frank through, even as weak as it was, and the banks have only gotten stronger, you know, since 2010. Um, so I think I think we need to look back at history and say Glass Steagall was right, and and basically we 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 paid a big price when we got rid of it. So as opposed to that, Marcus Stanley now talks about the actual response to the crisis. 
but Bernanke, Geithner, and Paulson, that same trio, uh, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago uh, for the anniversary of the crisis. And, you know, you could have expected uh, some self-examination, uh, certainly, because they, these were all very powerful regulators before the crisis, and their, their decisions helped lead to the crisis. But there were only 10 words in that, uh, that op-ed that dealt with their own mis- It was something on the, the order of mistakes were made. You know, there were, there were things we overlooked. And then they, they moved on and they said, what, what is the great problem we face today? The great problem we face today is that certain legal limits have been put on our ability to bail out the banks. And we need to reverse these limits. This is actually, this is the op-ed. It's, it's really, it's, it's really a amazing to to read and what's even more frightening of it of, about it is that in fact very few legal limits have been put on uh, their ability to to bail out the banks you know it really frightens me uh, what we might see in response to the next crisis because uh, people like Bernanke Geithner and Paulson are going around saying they saved the economy well, we cannot afford another success like the one they had. You know, I'd hate to see a failure if that's a success. So, Alicia, you can see the complicity with the, with the banks by the regulators. What's changed today? Nothing. And that's what the Haynes Royal Commission showed. Yep. Now, Robert Kuttner provides this brilliant insight into how the crisis might have been handled. Let's pretend that uh, we are having a 10th anniversary event on the 10th anniversary of the collapse of 1929. <laughs> and it's October 1939. And we're looking back, we're looking back on the previous 10 years. And what do we find? Well, we find the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. We find Glass-Steagall. We find a deposit insurance. We find uh, Homeowners Loan Corporation and Public Fannie Mae and Public Utilities Holding Company Act. and the banking committees are drafting what becomes the Two Investment Company Act of 1940. We basically turned Wall Street into a public utility um, that ran like a Swiss watch so that Wall Street could never do this again. And that set off about a 60-year boom because we insisted through all of these wondrous pieces of legislation that finance be the servant of the real economy and not the master. Yeah, so Roosevelt was responding to the massive dislocation of the Depression caused by the criminality and the speculation in the banking system, Alisa, and look at the legislation they produced. Mm. We have to do the same thing today. Mm. And then Kuttner later intervenes on Stanley's point that Bernanke, Paulson and Geithner cannot be persuaded that they're wrong. Marcus was, was uh, lamenting the fact that um, these guys, uh, Bernanke and Paulson and uh, Geithner and company seemed uh, beyond persuasion. And of course, the point is not to persuade them, the point is to crush them. <laughs> and he finishes up his presentation by saying that we need political action to put Wall Street back in its box, this time for keeps. Mm -hmm. So it's very good. I recommend you watch the whole thing on YouTube, um, which you can find. We'll put that up on the screen. Um, there's also a new video out by Nomi Prins for the, with, in conjunction with the Sanders, Bernie Sanders campaign, which is excellent. It's about six minutes and you can watch that on our Facebook page where she really emphasises the new crash on coming and why we need Glass-Steagall again today. So this is really, Glass-Steagall's becoming quite prominent. Yeah, not, not just in the US, but in Australia, in the UK, everywhere, look, there's a, there's a crash coming. Sensible people are looking at this, say, we need 
a new system, they're looking for Glass-Steagall. Yeah, so we'll be right back to discuss the solutions for Australia. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we'll now briefly discuss CEC's five-point program to survive the oncoming economic crisis. And you can read the detail about this in the latest Australian Alert Service. So the five-point program, which we'll be expanding uh, and you know discussing a lot in coming weeks, includes these um, policies. Glass-Steagall banking separation, a national bank, an immediate moratorium on all home and farm foreclosures, nation building infrastructure and science driver projects to revive the productive economy and finally international cooperation on a new financial architecture and economic development. So I'll just get your comment on them one by one Craig. So firstly Glass-Steagall I think should be familiar to most of our regular viewers. Bobcat has, a bill, has got a bill in the parliament right now Elisa for separating the banks to separate out the commercial banks you know to break them up. So that's, we won't say anything more about that because I think we've had plenty of discussion on Glass-Steagall yeah. today. But a national bank is a crucial follow-up to that's, that. Yeah, we've, we've had national bank legislation in our book, What Australia Must Do to Survive the, the, the um, Depression. We're, reviewing, we're revising that now to actually create uh, legislation to create a national bank in this country to control the credit of the nation to control how money is invested in the economy and to control the private banking system. Mm. Now, this is very, very important that you have a, uh, a national bank with that sort of authority. And this is what the private banks absolutely fear. They feared the Commonwealth Bank in the past. Mm. They feared it because it was, you know, it, unless they controlled it, like they did for many, mm. many years, it, it, it will uh, stop the sort of predatory lending practices that the private banking has been shown to have, both from the Royal Commission, but if you go back into history, you can go back and see what was done in the 20s and 30s in this country to cause the Great Depression, and it all came back to the private banks and their monopoly over the credit of the nation. That monopoly has to be directed, well, mm. that, that process has to be directed by the National Bank. Yeah, keeps all the others in line. And the other thing that's really critical, especially with the warnings now that are everywhere of a housing bubble crash yep. here in Australia, is an immediate moratorium on home foreclosures Yes. and also on farm foreclosures. Look, you can't have massive dislocation in the community because people are thrown out of their homes because of predatory practices by the banks. You've got to protect farmers. That's our productive part of the economy. And you've got to protect homes and and. and people that live in homes. Mm. So you've got to go back to the policies that were used very successfully in this country during the Second World War and during the Depression that were used in Roosevelt's period to keep people in their homes after massive, massive social dislocation because of the Depression over mm. there. We know what these policies are and we've elaborated them, Elisa. These have got to be brought in very quickly. Yeah, it's all been done before. It's not something new and fangdangled. Um, now, nation-building infrastructure and science driver projects to revive the productive economy, which is a follow-on from the National Banking, National yeah, we've Credit. Had 30, we've had 30 to 40 years of banks speculating with money, putting money into non-productive activities, you know, using it to create derivatives and to speculate. That's got to stop. Mm -hmm. We've got enormous potential in this country to develop. We could build high-speed rails, water projects to deal with the water problems we have with the drought right now. You've got all sorts of energy initiatives that we need to, to, to further. This is where the credit has to go. Yep. And that's what we have to have a massive program to build. Finally, international cooperation on a new financial architecture and economic development. Well, you can't do that. We, we're not an island. We mm -hmm. exist in an international community, but we need to be part of an international community of principle. And that is the BRICS group of countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Uh, we need to be part of the uh, the win-win policies of the Chinese Belt president, and Road. Belt mm -hmm. and Road. 
and it means international cooperation. Yep. So you can't rule that out. You can't just ignore that. And a new international financial architecture, which is being discussed more and more all the time. Now, that's all we've got time for, but give us a call and get involved in fighting for this to make it happen. Thanks for joining in. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. And join us again next week. If you would like to participate in the CEC's street activism, which is very important because we don't get the right media coverage for what we're doing. It's all self-generated effectively. But when you're out in the street with the public, no one can censor you, right? <laughs> so participate with us. It's very important wherever you are. We've got lots of CEC people around Australia doing things. Contact us on our toll-free number, 1-800-636-432. Send us an email, cec at cecos.com.au. We'll have someone speak to you and you can get involved.